On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The word of God for the world. Before I preach today, I want to let you in on a little secret. In uh, preacher parlance, this particular Sunday of the church year is not just called the second Sunday of Eastertide, it's also called Second String Sunday. And that's because most pastors have been so tired from Easter and from getting Jesus resurrected that they got to take the week after Easter off. And so in pulpits all over the world, um, us second stringers are preaching. Um, But what I also want you to know this morning is that um, Providence Baptist Church has a really deep bench. And we've also had people all over this congregation this morning who are pinch-hitting for folks who were out of town, and we had to do the order of worship before we knew that. So thank you to those of you who can do this so well that we really don't have a second string at Providence, except for the preacher. <laughs> and it just makes you grateful you have a first stringer. Today's gospel passages involve miracles. Resurrection from the dead and restoring of sight to the blind. Miracles complicate biblical interpretation, making preaching about them risky business. In our religious climate, when disagreement occurs on how to interpret a biblical story or passage, all too quickly and often thoughtlessly, we rush to hurl labels at each other, too liberal too conservative, not a real Christian, or too fundamentalist for their own good. Amidst these debates, the real truths to be mined from the stories can get lost 
or become so watered down that they lose their power to transform and nourish us. So today, as we consider these two miracle stories, both about blindness, both about inertia, both about fear, both about doubt, and both about resurrection. Let's suspend the debate and look with inward eyes at some of the deeper things we might learn from a skeptical disciple and a blind beggar. Let's start with doubting Thomas. A common interpretation of this story is that Thomas's doubt is a spiritual no-no that renders him less faithful than other disciples. But a careful reading indicates that his reaction may stem not so much from doubt that Jesus' resurrection is possible, but more from the tepid reaction of his fellow disciples who have already seen the risen Christ. A week earlier, all except Thomas were huddled behind a locked door when Jesus walks through it, offering them peace, showing them his wounds, affirming the Holy Spirit's power at work within them, and sending them out into the world with the good news of forgiveness. You, he says, have divine power inside yourselves to bind, imprison, or to loosen, liberate. Religion religion should restore and forgive, not wound and marginalize. Divine transforming power resides inside you here in this life. Do they internalize this message of liberation? Are they out proclaiming the resurrection good news? Are they grabbing anyone who will listen and offering liberating forgiveness to them? Are they dancing in the streets? No. A week later, they are still hiding behind a locked door, bound by their fearful, anxious, grief-stricken chains. In their heads, they know that Jesus is alive. They have seen it for themselves. But that good news has not yet reached their hearts. Is it any wonder Thomas doubts what this cowering lot of eyewitnesses tells him? How is anyone supposed to believe transforming good news if the very ones who claim to have already experienced that news remain paralyzed by their fear and imprisoned in their past? Seems to me that Thomas is not the only doubter here. Now, many Christian thinkers attest to a positive connection between doubt and faith. Paul Tillich claims that doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. Writer Anne Lamott says that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. And Frederick Beekner quips, Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. <laughs> Notice that Jesus' response to Thomas's doubt is not a chiding rebuke but a comforting greeting. Peace be with you. Jesus is not impatient with Thomas when his authentic doubt renders him skeptical about the dubious testimony of the disciples. 
Instead, Jesus invites Thomas to touch and to see the truth for himself. Jesus' actions toward Thomas indicate that doubts do not indict the strength of one's faith automatically. Instead, authentic doubt can spur us to live into and push past our spiritual blocks and blindnesses. Everyone doubts, says Stephen Shoemaker. Doubt is what keeps our faith moving from a less adequate faith to a more adequate faith, from too small a view of God to one more adequate for our lives. You want me to read that again? It's close to gospel. Everyone doubts, says Stephen Shoemaker. Doubt is what keeps our faith moving from a less adequate faith to a more adequate faith, from a too small view of God to one more adequate for our lives. If Shoemaker is right, then what can we make of the next words John attributes to Jesus? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. Here's what I think. The gospel was written some 65 to 75 years after Jesus' death. The community of faith to which this gospel is addressed cannot touch and see as Thomas could. They cannot assuage their doubt with first-hand knowledge of Jesus. They do not have personal memories of shared meals, deep conversations, belly laughs, or meaningful looks. There are no experiences of healings witnessed or lessons taught or prayers prayed or storms stilled. There are no physical wounds to touch. Perhaps the gospel writer puts this blessing on the lips of Jesus for the benefit of those to whom the gospel is addressed, for those who did not walk the dusty Galilean roads with Jesus or look up in surprise as he strode past the locked door when they thought he was gone forever. The blessing is for those, for us, who do not have first-hand memories to bring him alive, who have to believe without the benefit of shared relationship, touched wounds, or personal memories, who have to trust the sometimes feeble witness of those who claim to have had those experiences for themselves. Jesus' response rejects the shame on you for doubting reaction. He responds graciously to those who can see him. Peace, touch, see for yourself. He blesses those who never will have that benefit. He makes a gracious opening for all to respond. To his disciples he asks, how will you handle your authentic doubt? By cowering behind locked doors or trusting me? By keeping silent or kneeling to say, my Lord and my God? He leaves those same questions hanging in the air for us. So how will we respond, we Easter people, the not seeing who are called to believe? The closest some of us will ever come to not seeing is to be blindfolded. 
Remember as a child playing pin the tail on the donkey? You know, they blindfold you, give you a paper tail complete with a straight pin, which in the hands of a blindfolded child becomes a lethal weapon. (laughs) Then they spin you around until you are completely disoriented and coax you to stagger across the room and place the tail in a strategic location on a picture of an innocent donkey. (laughs) Poor donkey. That's what it can be like not to see. Often our lives resemble this childhood game. We stumble around as if blindfolded. We feel disoriented, helpless, Lost lost in the midst of an endless game of pin the tail on the donkey, trying to put things in the right place, only to discover that our inability to see has caused us to miss the mark we were aiming for in our lives. Sometimes with difficult and very unsettling consequences. Most of us struggle not with physical blindness, but with spiritual blindness. We lose our way spiritually, blinded by a self-sufficient need to control our own destiny or get our own way. We lock the door to our hearts and give in to our fears and our failures. Gradually, our vision about what really matters grows cloudy or gets lost altogether. We lose sight of what is most important, expecting things to make us happy. We find fault with ourselves, our spouses, our children, our parents, our friends, and neighbors. We choose easier, unhealthy paths or solutions rather than healthy, albeit more challenging ones. We cheat, blame, and numb our way through life instead of working hard at the business of really living. Sometimes this darkness descends on us through no fault of our own. Tragedy strikes. The day-to-day struggles of life just get too difficult to bear. Relationships end. Friends let us down. Life disappoints us. But for whatever reason, our inner lights go out sometimes. And doubt sets in. Jesus' disciples cowering in the upper room that day probably felt like this. Full of grief, questioning all they had seen, all they thought they knew scared of anything that moved, feeling completely alone. No wonder Thomas took some convincing when he saw them like that. He felt it, too, inside himself, the emptiness and the fear. Certainly their hollow-sounding assurances of resurrection did not serve to reassure or convince him. The disciples would have done well to remember their earlier encounter with the blind beggar Bartimaeus. For he embodies what faith looks like in the midst of the crises that create doubt, fear, and paralysis. Bartimaeus knows what it's like not to see. He's blind, but not from birth. He knows what it's like to lose something precious that he desperately wants back. For Bartimaeus, the crisis of losing his sight, his not seeing, creates clarity of heart and soul, allowing him to see more clearly from within what he needs to do and in whom he needs to trust. 
He has no firsthand experience with Jesus. Yet sight unseen, he decides to risk everything and bet his life on what he has heard about Jesus. His self-doubt and need are the ants in his pants that spur him to faith it. So he acts. As Jesus passes by, Bartimaeus calls out to him, and he keeps at it over the shushings of the crowd. Bartimaeus does all he can to establish a relationship with the one in whom he is placing his trust that new life just might be found. Amidst the crowd noise, part of the miracle is that Jesus hears Bartimaeus calling and stops in his tracks. When we lose our sight, when we call out for help, this story assures us that our crying is heard. At the moment of deepest need, when we recognize that we can no longer see and want desperately to see again, what we most need to know is that we matter to someone, that we are not alone, that we matter to God, that someone hears, sees, and cares about our predicament. That moment of realizing that we matter to another person and to God creates an opening for inner healing and hope, for trust that wholeness just might be possible. Jesus' response shows all who would be disciples that hearing, seeing, and responding to human need with compassion can lead past paralyzing doubt and fear to free and joyous resurrection living. When called... Bartimaeus jumps up and runs to Jesus. This is the response of blind faith. Nothing less than an unquestioning, eager yes when one's cries are compassionately acknowledged with a call to come. Jesus addresses the breathless Bartimaeus with a simple question. What do you want me to do for you? And receives a ready response. Help me see again. In the midst of our stumbling, bumbling, half-sighted attempts to live our lives, Jesus calls us to come to him, to faith it. The call invites us to accept his compassion, to adopt his way of living, to follow his guidance in relating to God, to grow into all we are created to be, to live again when our lives fall apart. The call comes in the form of a simple yet piercing question. What do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus ran when called. He had a ready answer. Do we? Or do we let ourselves get confused? Do we allow our doubts to keep us paralyzed on the side of the road, shushing with the skeptical crowd, or cowering in a locked room? Do we cling to the comfortable security of our infirmities because we're afraid of the unknown beyond them? Do we bind the possibility of resurrection in our lives? Walter Wangerin pins this story in his book, Morning into Dancing, and it's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, Morning. When I was a boy... 
A cherry tree growing in our backyard was my hiding place. Ten feet above the ground, a stout limb made a fork, a cradle on which I could lie, reading, thinking, being alone. One day, a sudden wind tore through the yard and struck my tree with such force that my book was ripped from my hands and I was nearly thrown from the limb on which I was perched. I locked my arms around the tree limb and hung on. The sky grew black. I saw a lightning bolt drop from heaven. Thunder crashed. Daddy! Daddy! The whole tree shook violently. The wind blew and the rain hit like bullets. I thought my arms would slip from the branches. Daddy! Then I saw his face at the back door, peering out as lightning stuttered across the sky. Out here, Daddy, up here, come get me. Right away he saw me and came running. I felt so relieved. I knew that he would climb up the tree and get me. But that wasn't the plan at all. He came to a spot right below me, lifted up his arms and shouted, Jump! (laughs) Jump? Was he crazy? Why, he was standing six or seven miles beneath me, holding up two skinny arms and telling me to jump? I could feel that strong tree against my body, and right then I made up my mind to stay there until the storm was over. I closed my eyes and hung on, but the wind and rain slapped that tree, bent it back, and cracked my limb. I dropped about a foot. Then the wind splintered, and I sank again. In that moment that seemed an eternity, I despaired. And then remembering that below me stood someone with the strongest arms I knew, who loved me dearly. And trusting that he wanted me safe and whole, I let go. I dropped. And he caught me. And he squeezed me to himself. In the end, what heals Bartimaeus? What convinces Thomas? What spurs the fearful disciples to open the door? And walk out into Pentecost. Jesus says, jump. And they jump. Maybe haltingly. But they jump. And Jesus walks past the locked door. Offers his open wounds. Baptizes them with his living spirit. He asks them what they need. He squeezes them to himself. I've been wounded too, see? I know the way to new life. Follow me. Your faith will make you well, will make you whole, will save you. How can we leave the safety of our doubt, our woundedness, our fear, and our blindness to jump into God's strong open arms? Is a simple jump too simplistic an answer to life's complex and fearsome issues? After all, not everyone who prays for healing who begs to see, who has deep faith, actually experiences the kind of physical healing Bartimaeus does or learns to preach like Peter. Not everything we hope for or have faith in comes to us the way we want or expect. Is it simplistic? We can
can only have faith by faithing. By trusting that our leaps of faith, regardless of their size, made despite authentic doubt and desperate need to cling to trees that are cracking beneath us, will enable God's powerful love to catch us, gather the fragments of our lives into a more coherent and peaceful whole, and infuse us with courage to unlock our doors, to get up from beside the road and run. In the end, we must face our doubt and trust ourselves to the mystery of God's grace. We do that by trusting the one who shows us most clearly who God is. That day, on that Jericho road, Jesus called a blind man and left him a changed man, able to see with bodily eyes that which his heart and soul had already trusted. The willingness of Bartimaeus to cry out his need, that act of blind faith, somehow unleashed the power to save, restore, make whole, give new life. That day in the upper room, Jesus let a doubting disciple touch his wounds, knowing that it is by facing authentic doubt and experiencing compassionate touch and shared pain that we grow more fully into the persons we are created and called to be. And so it can be with all of us who doubt, who are blind, Like St. Augustine, we can confirm that faith is to believe what we do not see. The reward of this faith is to see what we believe. A faithful response to Jesus' call makes it possible to respond to a love that is bigger than our suffering in a way that offers wholeness, healing, salvation, resurrection to a love that gives us courage to take steps toward becoming the people we are created to be and a way that enables us to see more clearly what it is like to embody God's compassion in this world. The stories of a disciple who couldn't see past his doubts and an old blind beggar who trusted in a healer he couldn't see tell us miracles are possible. For us, for Easter people, not seeing might just be a way to believing. Amen.